We are in our third week on the schemes of the adversary. And this could probably prove to be one of the more helpful uh, sermon series that we do. Um, the tag phrase or tag verse that we've used is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I didn't even put my mic on, did I? Is it just hanging back here? Look at me. I do that so you don't have to listen to me sing. In case I forget to mute, then uh, my apologies. I'm not even prepared this morning. Why didn't you yell at me or something? Nobody's listening anyway. Third week today on uh, the series of the schemes of Satan. How does he, how does he come against us as believers? Today, uh, I want to talk to you about our, our third scheme. C.S. Lewis said, There are two equal and opposite views or positions that we as humans take on the subject of Satan. One of them is to believe in Satan and, in fact, have an unhealthy admiration or interest in him. That's one side. But he said on the other side is to disbelieve in his existence at all. National polls would suggest that less than a third of Americans believe in a real, live being of Satan. The majority of us believe that he's just a myth. He's just a representation of what we call evil. He's just made up, to put it another way. Now that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous position to take. Wouldn't it be just like the devil to encourage his non-existence, right? So that he could fly under the radar. That probably works in his favor, doesn't it? We should probably say also that Christians... Uh, that do believe in Satan's existence sometimes fall into a rut of blaming him for all of their stuff, don't we? The whole Satan made me do it angle. I heard a story of a kindergarten girl who got in trouble at school one day and uh, she had a note sent home for kicking a little boy in her class and pulling his hair. Her mom got the note when she got home, read the note and turned to her little girl and said, Sally, why did you, why did you? kick that little boy and pull his hair? Why did you let the devil make you do that? And the little girl thought for a moment and quickly confessed, Satan made me kick him, but it was all my idea to pull his hair. (laughs) The series on Satan isn't intended to give us excuses for our sin. That's the point. Satan has no power over those who are in Christ. Do you know that? Scripture says we are more than conquerors. Scripture says that he that is in us, namely Christ, is greater than he that is in the world, namely Satan. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And that verse, Ray Lewis, is not about football. It's not about winning Super Bowls. That verse is for the Christian to hold to and cling to. Um, Satan, here's what he's doing. All right, He's working against us to slow down the inevitable. And what is the inevitable? Our perfecting, our sanctification, our holiness. As he comes against us, he's just working to slow down the inevitable. But he's also working to thwart the work of the gospel in any who are yet unbelieving. And that's his job, to come against us, slow down what God is doing in us. He can't stop it. But to come against us and to come against those in the world who are still in darkness and and therefore then to keep them in darkness. And maybe just by hiding our light, he keeps them in darkness. He himself is going down. He's already lost. 
but works against us to dull our lights, to hide our light, so that others can't use our light to find their way to Christ. He's trying to take as many with him as he can, and we who are in Christ will not be in that number. Did you hear what I said? We who are in Christ will not be in that number. But he will do all he can to wreck our lives, if possible, to keep anyone else from joining our team. So he will use us against ourselves for the sake of keeping the dark in the dark. Um, That is what these schemes are about. And that's why we're told at the end of Ephesians, Paul would say to the church, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And that just means that it's not only against flesh and blood. Do we have just practical, real-life flesh and blood hardships to overcome in this life? Struggles? We sure do. But there's this big war going on that's not about flesh and blood that we would like to think doesn't exist, but Paul says it does exist. And it's a war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So today we're going to deal with the third scheme of Satan, namely that he would seek to distract us. Satan is a liar from beginning to end. It is as equally his character to be a liar as it is God's character to be love. God is love. Then you would say in an opposite and equal way, Satan is a liar. It's who he is. It's his very nature. It defines him. When you were in the world, he whispered lies to you to keep you in the world. Now that you're in Christ, he whispers lies to you to convince you there's no way you can remain in Christ. Scheme number one, he's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. He wants to get us into error as best he can. Scheme number two, we saw last week, was that he would seek to disqualify you by your failings. If he can't pull you one way, he'll push you another. That's the idea. Satan is more than happy to set you up for a fall by presenting you with your own unique recipe for disaster. He looks, he looks at our lives. He looks at our weaknesses. He looks at our tendencies. And he will help push us in the direction, open the doors. And he's more than willing to put the stumbling block in front of us so that we fall flat on our face. He wants your amazing salvation story to read like a tabloid. Sounds good, but there's no credibility. Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. And he seeks to disqualify us. He wants to get you out of the race so that it counts for nothing, so to speak. Why? So that he can keep more of your light out of the eyes of those who are still blind. Um, Question. By helping you fall on your face, can he steal your salvation? The answer is no. Not a chance. The oversimplified answer is you can't unearn something that you've never earned to begin with. Now that's great news for those of us who have a tendency to trip and fall very often. Um, You've always been saved by grace through faith 
and that not of yourself, not by works, lest any man should be able to boast. That's always been the case, and it remains the case now that you're in Christ. So rest assured, he's working in our lives to trip us up, but he cannot steal our joy. He cannot steal our eternity. Um, Remember, Satan's going down, and he wants to take as many with him as he can. The collateral damage, however, the collateral damage to making you fall on your face in the Christian's moral failure can hurt those who are around us and are not yet in Christ. That was the point of last week's message. In that he seeks to disqualify us means that he seeks to use our life as a tabloid and with the collateral damage, with the fallout of what our falling does, keep others in darkness. Does it affect your salvation? It does not. You're covered by grace just like you were from the beginning. Does it do damage to the kingdom? It does. Now, that's a sobering thought, and that was the intent of the message last week. Um, your God, when we, when we fall, and the harder we fall, our God becomes a tabloid right along with us in the mind of many of those who see our fall. Um, we said last week we are all only a moment from disaster. What that means is that in a moment we can disqualify our own testimony of grace. If you want to use a different word instead of disqualify, use the word discredit. To discredit, to take our credentials and wipe them out. There's no truth. He wants to make us unbelievable in our testimony. Now, before we move on, let me give you the good news that I didn't give you last week because, as I said, last week the intention of the sermon was to sober us. But the good news is for all of those of us who may have fallen at some point in time while in Christ, if you're one who in some form or fashion or to one degree or another has taken the hit, And Satan has had a win in your life. If he has in some way disqualified or discredited your testimony, listen, you need to know a couple things before we move on. Number one, before you even hit the ground, Satan will begin to start whispering those same old lies once again. He goes back to his bread and butter. He goes back to his very nature. And even on your way down to the ground, Before you hit, he will start whispering lies once again. Lies like, well, you didn't deserve this to begin with, did you? You're not really who you thought you were, are you? He whispers lies about our worth in the eyes of our Savior. He whispers lies about our value. And he will even begin to call into question your very salvation as if it were dependent on you. He goes right back to lying. Number one, expect those lies to come. Number two, if you're one who has fallen, God has made a living out of wreckage, hasn't he? And that's great news. Satan may have gotten a few headlines from your failure, but let God tell his great story of redeeming love and grace as he repairs your life. 
I mean, that's what he does. He takes things that are broken and he, and he mends them. He fixes them. There is a great opportunity, even when we fall on our face, for him to have glory through what he can do in putting us back together again. That's great news. Number three, just because your failure puts you on the shelf or sideline for a time, don't be content to stay there. Now, depending on what, what has happened, you may be there longer than you like. But it's not, it's not an eternal sentence. God is in the business of restoration. God is in the business of fixing the mess. The repentant, the humble, God flies to their rescue. And he longs to prove himself strong through those who have shown to be weak. And that's been what he's been doing from the beginning. So don't for any one instant think that that's not what he will do now that you are in Christ. He's been doing that since you were long out of Christ. Um, the sobering fact is you may have caused some major damage. You may have to the kingdom. But God can take even that which Satan has meant for evil and squeeze some good out of it in ways that we have no idea he can. Scripture says that God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord. That does not mean that all things are good. That thing may be very bad. But you've got to know that your God is, is able, capable, and big enough to take even the bad and to find a way to work his glory out through it. I found that even, even those sometimes who have fallen uh, in the hardest ways, God is then able to tell an even greater story with their redemption, with their restoration. So your life may feel like it's been put on a shelf. Your testimony may feel like it's been damaged, disqualified, discredited in some form or fashion. But don't, don't settle in in that place for longer than you need to. Because that's not where God wants to leave you. He wants you back in the game. Um, is that right, church? Can we amen that? Amen. Last thing on this, and then we'll move on to this third scheme. Uh, the theme verse that's on the front of your bulletin that, that is on the bottom of this slide, that very theme verse, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, uh, it's especially fitting to be our theme verse for what I'm saying right here before we move on to number three. When Paul says to the Corinthians, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes, you'll realize that that's, that's somewhat of a fragment of a thought. Can I tell you what the rest of that thought is? Can I tell you what led him to say that? There was a situation in the church at Corinth where somebody fell flat on their face. And they got shelved. Their testimony took a hit. In the eyes of all those who saw it, there was damage done. And the church had to respond accordingly. They had to respond to the issue. And they did. The story goes on, though, that the man was repentant. He was humble of spirit. And Paul had to write back to this church and say, listen, um, church, let me, let me make sure that Satan doesn't have his way here again. You see, Satan helped this guy to fall flat on his face. That's great. And you responded to it. That's great. But listen, this guy is repentant. He's humble. We need to help restore him. And so then in that context, Paul writes this, in order that 
Satan will not outwit us. What does he mean? In Paul's mind, he said Satan's going to win here on the front end and on the back end if we let if we let this guy stay on the outside looking in. Paul's attitude towards this guy was that he needed to be restored or Satan gets another win. Don't let him be don't let him be so underhanded to win on the front and on the back end. And so Paul writes, we're not unaware of his schemes because this is yet just another one of his schemes. That he took this guy out, the church responded, but the man responded. But the church at Corinth was was still kind of stiff-arming him. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how grace responds. That's not the proper response of the body of Christ to one who is humble and repentant. We wrap our arms. We come alongside. Why? Because tomorrow may be our day where we need to be picked up, where we need to be restored. Amen? Is that right, church? All right. So let's go on. Scheme number three. If he can't deceive you, if he can't get you into error, if he can't disqualify, if he can't discredit your testimony, he will do his best to very simply distract you. He'll distract you. Webster's definition of distract is pretty simple. Listen, I think it's powerful and it paints a good, uh, paints a good picture for us. To distract someone means to cause them to turn aside. So that if they're focused on one thing, Webster says, you divert the eyes. You draw their attention off of their focus and onto something in the peripheral. That's what it means to distract. To draw or direct one's attention to a different object. In a different direction at the very same time. So while they're trying to look this way, while they're trying to go this way, Satan will attempt to distract us by trying to get us to go this way. Number two definition in Webster. To stir up or confuse with conflicting emotions or motives. Now this speaks to the heart and the mind of the matter. Not only will he seek to get us to focus on something else, but he in distracting us, attempts to draw our hearts towards those other things. You get an idea of how Satan uses distraction? I mean, this happens all the time, every day in my life. Hey, this is the way you're going? Well, what about this? Something flashy over here catches your eye. Something glittery over here catches your eye. Something interesting over here, when this is my focus all along. But he'll dangle this carrot. This opportunity, this situation, this concern, this problem, and it pulls my eyes. It diverts my attention. And there goes my heart. There goes my motives. If he can't beat us, he'll try to throw us off course. Sounds pretty simple, isn't it? Does your life in Christ have a clear focus? A couple questions you might want to jot down. Does your life in Christ have a clear focus? Or is there really nothing for him to distract you from to begin with? Do you live with any spiritual objectives? Do you live with any spiritual objectives? There's nothing complicated or apparently evil looking about this scheme, is there? It's very simple. 
Satan wants to steal your spiritual focus. But that accomplishes a great deal. One easy way to check your life in this area is to run a diagnostic check on your bank account, maybe. Your spending can often tell you where your focus is. Would Satan be discouraged by your year-end giving statement? Would Satan be discouraged by your year-end giving statement? Another diagnostic you can run is on your time. What takes the mass of your time? Your physical time? Your mental time? Is God, is His church, the natural center of your life? Or is He and His church an add-on to your life? Have you tacked God on to your life? Or is He your life? Have you tacked His bride, His church, His beloved? Are we an add-on? Or are we part of the center? Where, where do we spend our time? Where do we give our efforts? Mentally. Now the tricky part about this scheme is that it doesn't have to involve anything inherently sinful, does it? You could take a look into where you spend your time and your money and not find sin. But be careful. If Satan can't get you to do something bad, he'll settle for helping you do no real spiritual good. Is that right? Let me say that again. If he can't, if he can't help you to do anything bad, he'll settle for helping you to do no real spiritual good. Um, Satan is happy for you just to spend your life on something else anything else than something that will expand the kingdom of God. You want to spend your life on your career? Go for it. You want to spend your life on your kids? Go for it. Again, nothing inherently bad about any of these. Um, turn, if you have your Bible, to Nehemiah. I want to give you a quick story in the life of Nehemiah. And really, if you want a case study on the schemes of the adversary, you could read the book of Nehemiah in your Old Testament, and you'll find every one of the schemes that we're going to go through in these six weeks, you'll find each one of them in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a captive in Persia. And he had it on his heart that he was going to return to Israel and restore the temple, restore the walls around Israel. He was going to rebuild the city of God, essentially. He got permission to go. He pulled some workers together. I'm oversimplifying the story here so that we can get to chapter 6. But all along the way, he ran into roadblock after roadblock. Satan tried to thwart his work left and right. He threw every scheme he could think of at him. In Nehemiah chapter 6, he tries to distract Nehemiah. And I want you to see Nehemiah's response. Here's what he does. Now, when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, so the work is going well. He's been diligent about his work. Nothing has thrown him off course as of yet. Nothing else has worked to stop what he's doing for God. 
God has called him to rebuild this wall and he's going to do it come hell or high water. But every day something comes up and Nehemiah has to deal with it. Today, look what comes up. Look at the scheme. Come, let us meet together at Shepherim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So essentially the story goes that they invite Nehemiah to have a little siesta. Hey, we're going to throw a party down here in the valley. Why don't you come on down? Hang out. The very guys who have been trying to stop this whole plan from the very beginning, now what do they try? Come on down. Why don't you just hang out with us? We're going to barbecue up some food, have a little song, a little wine, a little dance. We're just going to have fun. Come on down and join us. What does Nehemiah know right from the start? They were planning to harm me. This is not, this is not a good opportunity. Right from the start, you realize that Nehemiah was a very astute, discerning person. But look at what he says. So I sent messengers to them. Nehemiah doesn't go to them. Does Nehemiah stop the work? He doesn't. Nehemiah continues on and he gets a messenger and he sends a messenger to reply. Here's what he says. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Did the distractions stop at that point? Did they cancel the party? They did not. The next verse says they sent messengers four more times in the same manner. And I answered them in the very same way four more times. The next verse says that they even tried a fifth time. Distraction after distraction after opportunity to quit, after opportunity to change focus, to redivert his attentions, to move his motives, to change what his heart was moving towards. And what was his heart moving towards? This great calling of God. What God had said, here's your focus. Could he be distracted? He could not. They hadn't thrown him off course until this point, and this scheme wasn't going to work either. What if, church, what if we had it in our hearts that every time there were a distraction, our response would be, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I am doing a great work of God. What if that were your response? What if that were my response? Do you know we could frustrate the enemy? With just that one sentence, I can't come down. I can't stop what I'm doing here. Uh, this is one story out of many in Scripture that I could have, could have pulled from. Distractions by our adversary are everywhere. My prayer is that the response of Nehemiah becomes our response, that we become so focused so attracted to the gospel and the kingdom and what God has said to make priorities in our life that we cannot be disattracted off of it and onto something else. Distractions might be big sometimes. Is that right? There can be big distractions. Tragedy, illness, loss of job, current politics, big distractions. Begging for our attention, begging for our time, begging for our focus, begging for our emotions, begging for our motives. They could be small distractions, though, too, can't they? Like the TV or just a little extra sleep. Anybody else like to sleep? 
They could be evil distractions, like the loss of a loved one by tragedy, like the fall of a saint into immorality. Evil distractions. But they might just be good distractions, like a career, our kids, hobbies, our talents, travel. Can Satan use those things as well? See, see that's, the, that's the craftiness of him, that he can take even those things, big, small, good, evil, and he can fashion them to divert our cause. A distraction can be anything used to steal our focus from whatever God has told us our focus ought to be. I feel like I might need to say at this point that some of us have yet to let God tell us what our focus ought to be. Um, do, you, do you realize that when Jesus became Savior, he earned the right to be Lord? And that means Lord for you. As your Savior, he, he gets to be Lord. He gets to, he gets to say what the focus of your life ought to be. I mean, can you honestly say that uh, in your Christian walk, in your race, that you're letting God mark the finish line? Or have you determined what your course is going to be? Have you determined the beginning, the middle, and the end? And if God wants to come along and help out in the bad times, that's great. But are we willing to let him set the priority, set the focus? You see, because if, if he hasn't set the focus and we've set the focus, uh, I fear that Satan need not even throw this scheme at us because we're heading in a direction that's, that's here when God has already said, I'd, ra I'd rather the guy be here. I'd rather this family be heading in this direction. But we already have our focus set here. So sometimes we, we need be concerned when, when seemingly Satan just leaves us alone to our own demise. And, and maybe this, again, here's the hard part. Maybe this direction points towards something that is very fine, well, and good. But is it what God said to point your life at? Be careful that Satan doesn't just make you busy. Before you know it, you're 30 and 60. And then one day you're facing the end of the race. And you look back and you've been real busy. But you, you can't count on one hand the number of souls that you've actually impacted for the kingdom. Be careful, Satan doesn't just get you disattracted to the things of God and the gospel of grace. Make sure that he doesn't change the focus of your prayers from your own personal righteousness and from the salvation of the souls of friends and family around you. Make sure that he doesn't divert the prayers of, the, of your heart even to be about just stuff. Those, God, I need this kind of prayer. Only. I mean, are your prayers full of prayers about your own righteousness? Prayers about the salvation of those around you? Or are your prayers primarily focused on, on, on the stuff that you want? 
Be careful Satan doesn't just make you materialistic, focused on the wood, hay, and stubble of life that burns up quickly and amounts to nothing. Be careful he doesn't make you short-sighted, as if this is all there is. There's nothing beyond this, and so let's get as much of this as we can, as fast as we can, because time here is running out and there's nothing beyond this. Don't let him, don't let him make you short-sighted. Over and over, I told, told Ricky that I, as I was uh, working on this message and reading in Nehemiah, I kept thinking of the old hymn that we, we don't sing much anymore. But there's a, a line that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And I've always loved the picture that this hymn paints. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his Glory and grace. I mean, when we have our eyes fixed on Christ, when our, when our attentions are on Him, when our priorities are about Him and His kingdom and His church, Satan is going to try his best to throw all kinds of distractions at us. But it's amazing when our eyes are fixed on Him, how the things of this earth, the, the shiny thing over here, that bait that He sets out for us, that is calling for our attention. It's amazing how those things grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we seek to be benefited from educating ourselves on the ploys of not just our enemy, but Your enemy. We take hope in knowing that He is not a, an enemy equal to the task he is a created being just like us. You have authority over Him just like you do every other thing that you have created. So we take comfort in that. We thank You for warning us through Your Word as to His schemes, His ploys. And Lord, as we get insight as to how He comes against us, we grow strong in our defenses. And so Lord, help us to recognize the lies. He is a deceiver. Lord, help us to recognize those stumbling blocks, those ways that He sets us up to take a fall, the opportunities He'll take to discredit us or disqualify our very testimony of grace. Lord, we don't want our lives to read like a tabloid. But Lord, um, it doesn't seem as amazing of a scheme. It's not as flashy but the truth is, if we think about it for the next few moments, Satan probably has his way more often by simply distracting us than he does in all the others total. Teach our hearts, Lord. Make us honest with ourselves. Give us courage for these last few moments.